We're going to be in Job for a few weeks, but I want to take you all the way back to 1940. You see, in 1940, C.S. Lewis wrote and published an academic book, The Problem of Pain. And it's his handling of the problem of evil. It deals with suffering, and it includes a very famous and amazing line that pain is God's megaphone. Pain is how God gets our attention, was his argument. It's an excellent book. It's a short book. If you want to read it, it won't take you very long. It's dense. There's quite a bit in it, but it's not a long book. It is excellent academically. But if you pick it up when you're hurting, it might not help as much as you think because it's an academic treatment of suffering. 20 years later in 1961, C.S. Lewis wrote and published a personal book about pain. Its title is A Grief Observed. Not grief observed. It wasn't treating grief in total or as a professor or a theologian or an apologist anymore. It's his grief observed after he lost his wife, Joy Davidson. It's the journey of his personal encounter with that problem of pain. After losing her, after only a few years of marriage and then being left with her two sons, his stepsons. Both are worth reading, but they both provide very different interactions with grief and loss and pain. And whether you are tackling the problem of pain and suffering theologically or it's experientially, the problem of pain often derails people as they are encountering suffering or as they're dealing with and thinking about suffering and loss and grief. It can send us into a tailspin. But God is neither absent from nor afraid of our wrestling with suffering. He's very present. And when that wrestling turns against him, he is no less present or engaged, and he is never afraid of our challenges to him. We see his treatment of the problem of pain in the book of Job. It's not the only place that scripture deals with it, but it is one that deals with it very intensely. So turn with me to the book of Job. We're going to tackle Job 1 and at least some of chapter 2, if not all of it this morning. But we'll start at verse 1. Job 1, verse 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. It points out he's the greatest of the people in the East. It doesn't define it. They probably knew better than we do what they meant by that when it was first being read, but it puts it probably in the range of Damascus, a little north 
of Israel on down to the Arabian Peninsula and then all the way east to Persia. It really doesn't matter, though. The point is who Job is, that of this vast region of a significant part of history, Job was the best of the people. He stood out above them. He's the greatest of all of them. In other words, this is a significant person. And if you have the wrong theology of suffering, that means life should be good for him, right? Because he's the best, life should be the best. That may not be what you would write on paper as your theology of suffering, but that is often how we approach it. It's the health and wealth gospel. It's the prosperity gospel. And it is relatively timeless. We think that rich people are blessed by God and that if you're blessed by God, you'll be rich and great. Most of us don't have the guts to say it, but we often act that way. Because God loves us, it's all going to be grand. Nothing will go wrong. Certainly, our kids will love us and life would be perfect In the United States, it's the white picket fence and a house and a long-lasting job that we enjoy and love and can't wait to go back to tomorrow. Monday is the best day, not the worst day, because life is good because God loves us. That's partly what that's saying. It's putting that picture out there. And if you know Job, you know that's what his friends thought. We'll get to them, not today, but eventually. Well, it might pop up today. But what they think comes out eventually. But he's the greatest in all the area. On top of that, more than just socially the greatest, it says four things about him. And scripture wants you to understand that these are true statements. That this is who he is. He is blameless. And if that wasn't enough, he is upright. And if that wasn't enough, he feared God. And if that wasn't enough, he turned away from evil. All four of those were accurate descriptions of them. Now, it's very important that you understand all of Scripture and its message in this, the redemptive, redemptive arc of the story of Scripture. This does not mean that Job never sinned and he does not need a Savior. That pops up in Job later on, chapter 19, where he says, or where he talks about his Redeemer. Job knows he needs a Savior. But the author of Job is making it very clear. Everything that unfolds from this point forward is not Job's fault. He didn't earn it. It isn't because of his own sin. It's because something else is going on. If you know Job, you know that. But even sometimes when we talk about Job, we sometimes start to forget that. As we hear his words and as we hear him challenging God, meet me in court. I want you here. I don't like what's going on. And we get a little uncomfortable with the first description and his words there. And God doesn't. Because when we are suffering with pain, God's not afraid or absent. He meets us in it. And he can take the challenge. But Job chapter 1 and 2 is making it very clear What's about to unfold in Job's life was not because of sin. Because not only was he the greatest in all of the land, in riches and notoriety and everything else, Scripture wants you to know, and it repeats it, that he is blameless and upright 
and he feared God, and he turned away from evil. And you are not to forget that all the way through the book of Job. 42 chapters, you're supposed to remember that description. Even at the end when Job repents, you are still supposed to remember the beginning where God and Scripture have declared, here's the starting point, Job is without fault. This is not earned this is not the discipline of God. God does discipline us to get our attention. That's partly what uh, C.S. Lewis was saying with the problem of pain as a megaphone. If we're going to ignore God, then God will get our attention. But Job, the book of Job, is saying that was not the case with the person of Job. God already has his attention, and he is following him, and he loves him, and he turns away from evil. There's a number of other things that are going on in there, or at least going on in the background of what's happening. When is Job written? We don't know. We like to debate about it. Sometimes we have good answers. Sometimes we have bad answers. The best thing I saw was this. It's to make Job timeless. Now, there is some indication of roughly what time it happens, but the when and even the where, we know a rough region of Job, it, it tells us where he's from, but it doesn't intensely mark it in time and history. It just generally places it roughly in time and history. And if you're reading on this, some will argue it's the first book of the Bible that was written. That may be true. I don't think it matters. Some will argue that, it, that he is pre-Diluvian, pre-flood. I think there's some indications that that's not. I think that one breaks down because it tells us Later on, when his friends enter, the two of them actually are arguably family members, or at least distant family members, because it places them in the line of the genealogies that we have, which generally puts it in a time and place. So if you read up on this and you see some of the arguments, just know there, there is enough of a time stamp to place it after Abraham and in this region. But the best way to understand Job seems to be this. Job could be representatively anyone in any era. He was a real person. There's another argument you'll hear as well as the drama. It's fictional. This is not fictional. It is dramatic. But it is a real drama playing out in history. Have you ever heard? I mean, we are in an era of documentaries. It's amazing. Um, I'm finding out how old I am because I've started watching documentaries. It used to be an old person thing, and I think time changed. I don't think it's just that I got older. But as you watch documentaries, it's amazing how often they're very dramatic and very real. Nonfiction is shockingly more exciting sometimes than fiction can be. And in fact, sometimes those things have to tone it down so we'll actually believe the events that are happening, and then you find out the real story and realize they had to cut out parts because I'd have thought it was made up. That's the same with the book of Job. This is a real person, a real follower of, follower of Christ who needs a Savior but is blameless among his peers, and this is an unearned experience that he's facing. He's just a follower of God. He would have popped up in Genesis but he has his own book, and he doesn't pop up in Genesis because he isn't important for that family line and the story being told there. Instead, he gets his own book where Scripture deals with the suffering 
of an individual when he is suffering for no reason. And if that statement scares you, hang in there. It's a quote from chapter 2. Actually, it's a quote from chapter 1 and 2. It's what Job says, the book, that he's suffering for no reason. Yes, it's to the glory of God. I'm not denying that, neither is the book of Job. But as you look at Job, you're supposed to think, this guy's going through this and not only doesn't know, but for all intents and purposes, it's for no reason. Now, God has his reasons, and we know that as we go through the book of Job. But if you're just watching Job in the time, the answer was it was for no reason. He didn't earn it. It's not discipline. It's just what's happening. And the next place it goes, Job 1, 6 through 12, is to the throne room. It's amazing. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, or the Satan, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord's all caps, by the way, so Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, and the Lord said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Did you hear that? That's God's declaration. Scripture weighed in on it. Of course, written by God, but God quotes it now. That these things are true. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. It's interesting, the your in there. Satan says, God... You stretch out your hand. God's response back, even with all of the catastrophe that happens in Job is, he looks at Satan and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. You just stretch out your hand. Your hand is a weak, pathetic one. Mine's a little more powerful. It's the only thing that happens in Job is Satan's hand against him. That's an interesting pairing of words. They both say that to each other, your hand. Wrestle with that one if you want to a little bit. It's, to me, it jumped out. It's very interesting. But what we're seeing is God's throne room. He's in the king's court. It's also called, and there's a number of different names for this, but sometimes it's called the divine council. More recently, it's not that it hasn't ever been called this before. Um, from a well-known author, it's been called the council of the gods, little g. I don't like that term. It's the heavenly council. But we see God in his throne room. But what you're seeing in that is a summoning to the king's throne, to the court. When you see Satan walks in, some people will read this and they'll go, oh, look, Satan could go in and out as he pleased. That is not at all the case. Satan gets called in before the king. 
everybody has, that's represented in this divine council, divine coming solely from God, by the way, he's the only divine in that room. One God, three persons, we are monotheistic, and Job fits that. But it's summoning all of the spiritual beings, all the angels, into the throne room, or at least here, a particular group of angels into the throne room, and it says, you have to give an account to God. It goes from just the royal court to a courtroom, even though it's one and the same for them. And Satan has to come before the king, the magistrate, and give an accounting for who he is and what he's doing. There is no point in the history of the world where Satan is truly unleashed with no accountability to God. He is always restrained at least to an extent. There's no point where it's God versus Satan and there's a question about what's going on. It is always Satan as a creation of God who is rebellious, but God is still 100% in control. And you see the same thing here. Satan didn't just wake up and feel like, I'm going to go to God today and I'm going to have a little conversation with him. He got a piece of paper, essentially, this is how it would play out in ours, that said, you have to show up at this day and time because you have to give an accounting. God, the king, he wants to talk to you. Picture it the right way. Satan is not in power here. Satan gets pulled before the one of power. And he's in a court setting but not as somebody that's welcome there and not as somebody that has power there. So he's summoned before the throne room, the king's court, and then Satan has to get permission and authorization to do anything. And in that conversation, Job comes up. Now, another thing that you have to wrestle with is God's the one that enters Job into the picture. Satan, have you thought about Job? That might make you a little uncomfortable. I'm going to leave you there. Wrestle with that this afternoon. You need to understand this, though. It isn't that God's being unloving to Job. In everything that plays out, God is still the God of love. God is still the God of grace. God is still the God of power. Everything that's going to play out in the book of Job, those three things are true. And so much more, by the way. But those three things are still true. But as Joe, I'm sorry, as God and Satan have this conversation, Satan's power is limited to the request, actually the challenge, and then it gives us an amazing picture of how Satan acts, the accuser. Well, it's not fair, God, because you're protecting him. If you want to latch on to something in Job 1, latch on to that. Satan's whining and complaining that God is too protective. Well, of course Job worships you, God, because you've got your hand protecting him everywhere around. And the answer is yes, he does. Yeah, God's hedge of protection, Satan can't touch. As you're wrestling with God, putting Job out on a platter before Satan, don't forget that Satan, in an honest moment, a whiny moment, but an honest moment, says, okay, what am I going to do? You've got your hand all around him. And the answer is yes, he does. Yes, he does. Every single one of us. 
even as we encounter the problem of pain and suffering that's going on, that's the kind of power that our God has. As we wrestle with that, hold on to that statement by Satan, shockingly, that God has a hedge of protection around people. It could get much worse, by the way. Even when we are at our worst or experiencing our worst, God is still holding us in a hedge of protection. It's a beautiful statement, accidentally made, if you want to put it that way, by Satan. But what we then see is God does remove some protection, at least. And that is a a difficulty to wrestle through in the book of Job. But it's more of discomfort. We just don't like thinking about that. But we see it play out in this. Satan says, well, take your protection away. God still protects him, by the way. But what we're going to see in the very next verses is a glimpse of life without God's provenance, sorry, and active protection for a moment. And think about how brutal this is. God takes that hand away, still holding Job. Don't think God's hand completely removed. He puts limits on Satan, but not all of that protection is there for a moment. And he says, Job's still going to stand by me. I know him. I know his heart. And a loving and gracious God in this moment chooses to take that act of protection away for a time. We don't know why, other than this interaction with Satan, but it is to God's glory and is for his purposes. But by Satan's words, it's, it's, it's worshiping God for no reason, and what we're going to see is to an extent, suffering for no reason, that statement's going to pop up again. A little bit before we move on to those next verses, though, it also mentioned the sons of God. Those of you in Genesis 6 who want the Nephilim to be um, the, the interaction of human women and angelic beings, the sons of God, this is actually one of those arguments. I would encourage you this. Those of you that read on this, um, you can totally disagree with me. Uh, the, the famous author I mentioned before, his name is Michael Heiser. He's got a bit of a following, and he, he is not heretical. It's not at all what I'm saying, but I think he overreaches. He overfocuses, at least. Um, he's passed away recently. I think it was within the last year. But as you read his stuff, he has some good things to say. But I would love to have a longer conversation, or make sure you look at the counterpoints, those of us that would look at what he says in, in, in Bible Project is a big fan of Michael Heiser, and they have, they have an interesting video if you want a quick version on it. It's not that it's wrong, it's that it just goes too far and focuses too much on it. I don't like some of their terminology either, as I mentioned before. I have no problem with the divine counsel, but if you start using little g gods without the full understanding of what he's talking about, then you start getting confused with our language, and that becomes problematic. I personally, by the way, with Genesis 6, most recently had kind of landed on, I don't think that's what it is. I think parts of Genesis are pointing us a different way, but it's the same term. I'll also say this, both the Heiser stuff and the Nephilim, these are things I, I use with our students that there are things that are written in concrete. Think of the, the Ten Commandments literally written in stone. <laughs> Those are unchangeable. You don't get to murder anybody. This is not up for debate. Don't murder people. That's hard and concrete. There are other things that we need to write in pencil. They're non-essentials. 
They're important, but they're non-essentials. We can debate about them. And this one I came up with this week. This one is like when you're at the beach and you write something in the sand. There are some things that we need to write, hold so loosely that you're like, okay, you and I disagree, and nothing's changed because of that. We can go to the same church. We can partner in ministry together, and I'm just going to tell you from time to time you're wrong about that, and you'll tell me I'm wrong back, and it's no big deal. Because they're such a small part of scripture and theology that they really don't matter. It's like when your kids are at the beach and they write something and the wave comes and washes it away and it's all right. And you might find yourself bouncing back and forth on a couple very inconsequential things in scripture where you read, you're like Tevia and Fither on the Roof. And you read one thing and go, he's right. And you read something else and go, he's right. And somebody points out they can't both be right. And you go, you're also right. Because it's written in sand, I don't want to fight anybody on this one. It's inconsequential to me. I like to think about it, but this is not the most important thing in the world. I got to remember to pick up butter tonight, and that's more important. It's that kind of thing, written in the sand. And if you disagree with me on that, great, come tell me that. I'll smile, and we'll be friends. Next section. Job 1, 6, oh, I just read that, I'm sorry. Job 1, 13 through 19. This is total devastation. Well, it's not quite total devastation because chapter 2 is coming, and that's where total devastation is. But this is near total devastation. This is God removing that active hand of protection where Satan says, of course he loves you. You're protecting him. You're blessing him. And God says, okay, I'll remove it for a time. A short time, by the way. A very quick time, but it is a powerful moment. And this is, I think, a glimpse of if God were not actively involved today in our lives, it would go this way immediately. Job 1, 13 through 19. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he, was still, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Near total devastation in one day. Job's standing there now with, I think it was four servants, probably not his favorite people on the planet at the moment, even though it's not their fault. They're the, they're the people that survived catastrophe. And still more is about to happen. But he lost his kids. He lost his business. He lost his workers. And by the way, when it tells you the character of Job, don't dismiss that him losing his workers was a hurtful moment for him. I got to think these are people he cared about because he was a good man. But he loses everything, except if you're counting 
he still has his health and his wife until chapter 2. Total devastation. I know some of you enough to know your stories. Some of you know me enough to know parts of my story. And I've seen people walk through tough moments, but this is a day. This is the day that goes on Job's calendar that he taps out on on everything in the one-year mark, in the two-year mark, in the 200th-year mark. He doesn't make it that far, but if it was there, you just black it out on your calendar and say, I don't want to wake up that day, I'll wake up tomorrow. I don't want to live that day again. I don't want to live the memory of that again. Even though it's every day after that because of the total devastation that happens. And we know what's happening. That Satan challenged God and God is showing Job's faith to Satan to put Satan in his place. But Job is suffering for no reason. From his perspective, I don't know what I did. I just know I hurt. And that's what you're supposed to be left with. He didn't do anything. He's just hurting. It's pain. If you've been there or are there now in your life, go wrestle with God. That's part of what we're going to see in the book of Job. Is Job turn to God and cry out and say, where are you? And I need more. And he's not wrong for that. Job defends Job and the book and the man on that. He eventually reaches the point of saying, I want my day in court with you. And as American Christians, we get uncomfortable with that statement. And the book of Job says, don't be. If you're ever walking with this through a friend and they're crying out to God and say, God, show up today. I need you. Show up today. Don't chastise them. Just hug them and say, I know God's here. I don't know why you can't feel him. I can't explain that to you, but I know I'm here, and I know he's here. And I know when you see him, it's going to be powerful because that's the God I serve. And that's the God who's wrestling in the room with you, but it's not with you against you. It's with you on your side. Because that's our God who is still, even in the midst of pain, loving and gracious and powerful. And Job comes around to that at the end if you know the book. But it's going to take 30-some chapters to get to that point. Don't worry, by the way. We're not going to take a year going through Job. That's way too much. And his friends are not worth that much time. But, well, okay, they are as image bearers of God. But their words are not worth that much time. Much of that will go through quickly. But we're left with Job and loss. Job 1, 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he has a profound statement. I'll be honest. I know very few people in the midst of this kind of pain that go this quickly to that statement. And this doesn't mean he's not wrestling. He is 100% wrestling with the problem of pain. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. I don't need anything, stuff-wise. He's not talking about his kids there, although it's also true there. I didn't come into the world with him. 
It hurts that I will leave without them. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I sh shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And lest you get confused about the character or the culpability, that's the, the guiltiness of Job, Scripture weighs in, 122. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He didn't earn it, and he didn't sin in response to it, but he's devastated. As any of us would be, and as many of us have been in painful moments, he's devastated. Continues on, Job 2, 1 through 6, because it isn't total devastation. There's yet more to come. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, and the Lord said, from going to and fro, I'm sorry, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. By the way, it's, that's a bit of an elusive statement by Satan. He's the liar and the accuser, and he's just showing his character. He doesn't really give an account. God knows, though. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He's saying it again twice. God says this about Job. How amazing is that? Think highly of Job. God did. God does. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. It's another fun thing to wrestle with. Wait, Satan incited God. Satan's not, or God's not saying that Satan successfully incited him against Job. He's saying, Satan, you came as the accuser. You're the bad one here. He says, this is the only reason that this is happening to him, is you needed to show, be shown Job's total faith in me. God wasn't provoked from nothing. That's not what God's saying there. It's laying it at the feet of the saying and just calling him the jerk and evil being that he is. But then God adds in there for no reason. Again, if you're uncomfortable with that title, God is not. He includes that in his statement for no reason. Job hadn't earned Satan's attention. And yes, it is still for the glory of God and for reasons that I don't even entirely understand. But God adds in there that there's no reason that Job is enduring through this. At least, there's no reason that he's warranted. But God has chosen in his greatness to engage in this with Satan. And Job is a part of that dramatic playing out. Then Satan answered the Lord, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. This shows you how evil Satan is. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand again. This, Satan's like, I don't have any power. You would have to set your hand against him. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. God's still protecting Job, by the way. 
yet to spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. We're going to leave him there for a moment. We'll pick up with his wife and his friends next week. But this is total devastation. He didn't lose his wife. His wife is still living, but she has some interesting statements. But he's lost everything. And he's still faithful. It's such a powerful moment. He's still clinging to God. He's still, even in the midst of the book, when he hits the wrestling point, he's still clinging to God and his power. I don't know what the worst suffering you've had. The worst suffering I had was about a physical, was about of shingles, which is tiny compared to what he's going through, tiny compared to what some of you have gone through. And oh, in the moment, does it not feel tiny, those of you that had it. But it was the first time in my life that I remember of thinking, that pain goes much deeper than the skin and the bone. That pain is physically deep, and how in the world can it hurt that much? And if you know anything about shingles, it's just like one nerve, <laughs> just like one spot. has you just cringing. And for Job, it was head to toe. Powerful. Wrapping up this first and the part, first part of chapter two, what do we do? We need to examine our theology of loss and grief and suffering. We 100% need to go the problem of pain, the book route, like C.S. Lewis, where we think of it when we are apart from pain in the moment. Although if you notice the time, 1940 in UK, World War II is taking place. It isn't completely apart from pain. But we need to think about it when we are doing great and wrestle with who God is and what suffering means. Because we will certainly face it. And if we don't, a loved one will and we have to walk through it with them. So we need to make sure our theology of God and our theology of suffering is locked in. Because there's going to be a moment then where it's a grief observed when pain hits you. Or hit your loved ones. And boy, is it tempting to take all the theology and throw it away. Which we should never do, by the way. But the other thing that happens is sometimes that theology gets refined very tightly. Because we realize we made some statements that, that we didn't know anything. We thought we did. We're a 20-something college kid in their second year of college that knows everything, including how mom and dad parented wrong. And we thought, I got it locked down. And then we have our second child eventually. And if that first child was a good and easy one, the second one might not be. And we figure out, oh, well, maybe I should put that, that book that's in the process on hold for a minute before I tell everybody how to parent. Because life slams into us and the theology gets refined hopefully to even better theology. But we need to wrestle with that. What is our theology of suffering? But then the other part is, what is our practice of suffering? This is what we know, and this is who's hurting, whether it's me or somebody else. And I've got to take that theology with grace to them and love them through the hardest part of their life, at least so far. 
And if you've encountered that in your own life or with somebody else, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, it's time to start wrestling first with theology, but second with how theology plays out in real and painful moments. It should not change, but it might get very locked in and tight with some things carved out that are not the best things to say to people. And we'll get to that next week of unsound advice. But the other thing that we see in Job is faithfulness in the throes of suffering. Faithfulness in that moment. I know my theology, I I got nothing. I didn't bring anything to this. I only have a God of power who loves me and I've seen bless me. And when that blessing is harder to see because it's in the middle of suffering, I will still hold to God is omnipotent and loving. Because if I don't have that, I got nothing at all. But I'll take a God who loves me. But here's the other one, back to theology, and this is certainly what we see in Job and Scripture. God is the only answer that is sufficient for the problem of pain and suffering. Because if you kick God out of the answer, the only thing you're left with is pain and suffering. That theology is crucial. When God says, this is not all that you were made for, And wonderfully, he says, as brutal as this is, it is temporary because I'm with you for eternity. So hold on to me because I'll get you there and I haven't gone anywhere. I still love you and I'm still the same God. Let's pray. Lord, mighty and holy, even in pain, you are so wonderful to us. But Lord, there are painful moments where you feel missing. And yet you aren't. You are never missing. You are always loving, always true, and you are always present. And so we praise your name. Amen.